Shalom, this is Rabbi Talmud Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parashah number 25 for this year 2023. This is Zav, given order. This is out of Leviticus 6, 1 through 8, 36. So this week uh, we're going to concentrate <clears throat> on the relationship between the Parashah and the Brit Kadashah, that's a refreshed, renewed covenant, a little more than usual to emphasize the applicability of the sacrifices beyond the Tanakh and into the time of Yeshua, the present and beyond. And this focus will be on the burnt offering and the disposition of the ashes. Now, comparing this Panishad to the previous one, where Moshe presented the role of the individual in the process of the offerings, this Panishad provides supplemental instructions for the priestly line, that is Aharon and his sons. Yahweh elaborates on the sacrifices in the previous parashah, but adds a new one, the thanksgiving offering, which is a type of peace offering. It's a voluntary offering with two special features. Forty loaves are brought with it, and it must be eaten the same day. Of course, not by the same person. This is unusual, as the time allotted for eating all the other peace offerings is two days. Only compulsory sacrifices are eaten in one day. So the logical question should be, is this offering really voluntary, or is it compulsory? So we must consult King David's psalm of thanksgiving, that's 116, to understand the nature of the thanksgiving offering. David is praising Yahweh for saving him. And the final stage is a thanksgiving offering, performed publicly as the psalm reads, quote, I will pay Yahweh my vows in front of the whole nation, unquote. And in this public feast, an individual thanks God, and tells all those present of the miracle that happened to him. Perhaps we can now understand why this voluntary offering has a hint of compulsory offering added. The whole purpose of this offering is to proclaim Yahweh's greatness and providence. This is why the offering has 40 loaves, to force the individual to find at least 40 people to share it with him, consuming all of it in one day. At the feast, he gets the opportunity to tell his story, which encourages people in their belief. The entire community is united in praise of Yahweh. And in this way, the offering serves a double purpose, to let everyone know that Yahweh watches over us and to unite the community in belief and praise of Yahweh Elohim, glorifying him as is our purpose in our lives. The problem with encouraging testimonies for Yahweh today is that many people choose to recite a dissertation with a self-aggrandizing agenda rather than a simple explanation of what Yahweh did for them, glorifying Him. The other potential problem is that we humans tend to forget all the good that Yahweh's done in our lives and concentrate on our trials, not understanding that these were meant for our growth in Yahweh Yeshua and further blessing. So the, the fire was to never go out. The fire was originally kindled by God. This is the one for the burnt offering. It emphasizes a divinely prescribed order of worship and the focus on the altar. This is in Leviticus 9.24. The priests kept the coals burning as the Israelites traveled and sustained the same fire when they reached the land of Israel. That's no small feat. This was a constant reminder that the God of Israel was and is ever-present. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. The burnt offering represented the one who brought the sacrifice to the priest. It took a humble and loving attitude on the part of the Israelite making the offering and God's acceptance of a life given up to him. 
Even more, the sacrifice of a life was not restricted to the life sacrificed, but represented the subjection and consecration to God of the Israelite who brought it. Remember that the burnt offering was voluntary, reflecting our free will to either choose to serve God or reject him and his Torah, his instructions. The Hebrew word for this is korban, which means offering or gift. Now, there are two burnt offerings mentioned, the night and morning offering. These were done on a national level, a lamb in the morning and one in the evening. Israel was to be a holy nation totally dedicated to God because of the covenant. The evening offering was kept on the altar until morning with the fire burning, and the offering for the day remained on the altar for the entire day. And this served as a reminder that the nation was to remain holy and solely dedicated to God for his glory and purposes. That's the way we are to be if we are going to consider ourselves to be true believers and followers of God. One of the priestly tasks was to take the ashes and place them beside the altar. The fire on the altar had to be clean and pure for the various sacrifices. The ashes were a reminder of a finished sacrifice made by individuals in the nation. When the ashes were cleared, the priest changed into ordinary clothes as he carried them outside the camp to a clean place. These ashes were considered a memorial of the animals that were sacrificed and as such were to be considered holy and separate, still belonging to God. During the temple period, the ashes were placed in an area consecrated for that purpose south of the city. This was the reason that no one lived in this area. So let us compare this procedure to prophecy. When Joseph of Arimathea claimed Yeshua's body, that's in John 19.38, he quickly prepared it for burial since Yeshua had to be buried before the Sabbath. As Yeshua was crucified on a Wednesday and not Friday, counting the days biblically, we realize that this was a high Sabbath and not the regular Friday sunset, sunset to Saturday sunset Sabbath. And I direct you for more information on this subject, visiting our website at rabdavis.org. Yeshua was laid in a new tomb in which no one had ever used. Yeshua's body was placed in a clean place, just as the ashes of the tabernacle sacrifices or burnt offerings were carried to a clean place. Yeshua was a quote-unquote burnt offering in that these offerings represented total consecration to God. This is also known as an Ola offering. As Yeshua is God, his sacrifice was efficacious to remove the death indictment for sin since all humans inherit through the fall of Adam. This complete sacrifice by Yeshua provides a way for man to become reconciled to God, slash Yeshua, and then to bring, uh, begin a walk of loving obedience to God's commands and laws. It's not a once saved, always saved proposition. That is nowhere substantiated in God's Torah. All right. Our Haftarahs out of Jeremiah, that's Yermiyahu. And our Padashah continues with the subject of sacrifices the children of Israel must bring to Yahweh. And in this Haftarah, Jeremiah lists all of Israel's sons during the temple period, just as we... Uh, have studied in the book of Micah. One of the sins mentioned is that instead of sacrificing animals in the temple, Bnei Yisrael built altars to sacrifice their own children to the heathen gods. This is what's happening with abortion today. We have gone back to doing the same sins that Israel was accused of and was punished for when the temples were destroyed. We have not learned anything from history.
The prophet tells them that Yahweh wants them to do kind and just deeds instead of sinning and bringing sacrifices without the heart that goes with it. A sacrifice loses its efficacy when an individual heart is not repentant and obedient toward Yahweh. Our break Kaddish is out of Romans 12, and it says, quote, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of the Olam Hazeh, that means this world. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will know what God wants and will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed, unquote. Now, Shaul, or Paul, is exhorting all believers to respond positively and fully to God because of everything he has done and is doing. In chapters 1 through 11, I exhort you to do everything in chapters 12 through 15, all of which is emphasized in the instruction to offer yourselves as a sacrifice. Now, God's mercies were spoken of throughout chapters 1 through 11, especially in 9 through 11, and explicitly in 11, 30 through 32. God's mercies form the pivotal book of Romans, on which Shaul, or Paul, turns from doctrine to the practical advice introduced by the Greek word parakalo, I exhort, or advise, counsel, encourage, request. Offer yourselves, literally your bodies, as a sacrifice, a striking metaphor when animal sacrifices were still being made twice a day in the Jerusalem temple worship. In 6, 1 through 14, and 8, 13, he explained what kind of death is required. The believer is not to live by his old nature, but by the Spirit. Then he will be living with the Messiah's life and thereby be set apart for God. That's the new man. We have a new nature. We are expected to replace our human nature with a Torah-observant nature. So our first inclination in everything that we think and do should be consistent with God's Torah and not our selfish human desires and our human nature. We can overcome it. It is not easy to do that, and it takes a lifetime. But it can be done. God tells us that his Torah is not a heavy burden, and it's not some far-off place where somebody says, I have no idea what to do. We have been given that information. Now we need to follow it. So it's logical, quote-unquote, temple worship for you, the King James Version reads, which is your reasonable service. The Greek latria corresponds to the Hebrew avodah, which can mean work or service in the everyday sense. The cognate eved means slave, and this is what contemporary readers mistakenly pick up from the archaic expression in the King James Version. But avodah is also the technical term for the religious service performed in the temple, and the context dictates this translation. So there are works involved. Christianity teaches that you don't have to do any works. Don't live under the law. We've been given freedom through grace in Jesus Christ. That is not true. There is a law component and a grace component, neither of which can be separated from each other. How can you be judged when you stand before God for the deeds that you have or haven't done if there were no deeds required? Let's just look at this logically. In verse 2, Presenting your body to God for right action commences with your mind. Turn from the standards of this world, 
that are rooted in secular humanism, which is becoming more prominent by the day, Hellenism. This is totally contrary to God's Torah. This is what democracy is based on. This is where we're going. Democratic socialism. Look it up. Look at history. Look at what God did to the Israelites for their disobedience and what it will take for them to become the bride of Yeshua in the future. It is not the church, by the way. It is Israel. Israel is all true believers defined by Yeshua several times in the Bible, including John chapter 14, Romans chapters 1 through 3, and the sevenfold witness in the book of Revelation. Turn from the standards of this world that are rooted in secular humanism, Hellenism, and are totally contrary to God's Torah. We must learn what God wants from us, and he's made it very clear. We are to worship him his way, not ours. After careful consideration, we must agree that what he wants is morally good, psychologically satisfying, and in practice with our ability to accomplish, reaching our goal. In the Greek, teleon, sometimes rendered perfect, but in this passage strongly connotes the goal orientation and accomplishment inherent in the related word telos, as explained in 10.4. Let's look at these verses in more detail. Later in the book, Shaul speaks of the evidence that non-Messianic Jews have not submitted themselves to God's way of making people righteous, which shows that their zeal, their zeal for God is not based on a correct understanding. I'm talking about rabbinic Jews, those of the other sects, that's S-E-C-T-S of Judaism, that do not follow God's Torah. This lies in the belief that Messiah has not brought the law to an end, nor is he the termination of the law as a way to righteousness. The Torah continues. It is eternal. God's Torah, properly understood as the very teaching that Yeshua upholds and taught his disciples, by the way, and to, to which Paul was converted from rabbinic Judaism, is what's going on here. This is the only way to righteousness, although it is Yeshua the Messiah through whom the Torah's righteousness comes. For the good news that righteousness is grounded in trust is proclaimed already in the Torah. This is the central point of 9.30 through 10.21. In seed form, this was already stated. Shaul declares it directly in Galatians 3.6. To such a Torah, there is no cessation, neither in this or the next world. How can Christians, the clergy starting with, teach that the law is dead and it was abrogated with the crucifixion of Yeshua? It was not. Read the book yourself. The truth is not peripheral, but it's central to the gospel, and it cannot be compromised, even if the whole of Christianity were to oppose it, which they do. While there's a recent and valuable strand of modern Christianity scholarship that acknowledges Shaul was neither anti-Jewish nor anti-Torah, this truth is not widely taught in popular Christianity. I've gone to both Christian seminaries and Jewish yeshiva, and I know what they teach. To embrace this truth would mandate Christians re-examine their belief and the pagan traditions they hold dear to this day. I don't speak to Christians out of hatred. I speak out of desperation in hopes that they will start looking stuff up and reconciling the inconsistencies that they're taught as compared to God's Torah. To Jews who have even a modest amount of Jewish training, the Torah is correctly understood as a central and eternal element of God's dealing with mankind in general 
and with Jews specifically. Therefore, the idea that the law has come to an end with Christ or was nailed to the cross is for them both shocking and unacceptable as it should be. Fortunately, these statements are also untrue. According to Arndt and Gingrich's A Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament, the Greek word telos, used 42 times in the New Testament, has to mean finish, cessation, termination in four or five places. Mark 3.26, Luke 1.33, 2 Corinthians 3.13, 1 Peter 4.7. And in the majority of cases, its meaning is either aim, purpose, goal toward which a movement is being directed. 1 Titus and 1 Peter 1.9. 1 Outcome, result, consummation, last part of a process not obviously being directed and which may or may not terminate. These meanings are reflected in the English word teleology, the branch of philosophy dealing with goals and purposes. So we must ask why is telos generally regarded as meaning termination in this case? The answer is that theology gets in the way of exegesis. Wrong theology that falsely understands the Mosaic Law as not offering God's righteousness through trust. Wrong theology that denigrates God's Torah and thereby both the God who gave it and the believers to whom he gave it and who observe it out of love and obedience. Even the paraphrases of the Living Bible persist with misinterpretations such as, quote, Christ gives to those who trust in him everything they're trying to get by keeping his laws. He ends all of that, unquote. And Phillips, quote, Christ means the end of struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes in him, unquote. That is simply not true. Unless you interpret belief as following, emulating, observing, worshiping. Sadly, these statements completely miss the point. The verse is not about our struggle. It's about God's Torah. It's true that whoever comes to trust in Yeshua relies on him for reconciliation and forgiveness of past sins. That's in Romans 3.25 and 2 Peter 1.9. Thus ending self-effort. We cannot make it on our own. Neither can we make it on grace alone or following God's laws alone. It has to be loving obedience to God's laws and his grace. This verse doesn't speak of anything ending. It says the great sweep of God's purpose in giving the Torah as a means to righteousness achieves its goals and consummation in the coming of the Messiah. Shaul says that it therefore follows that a person who has the trust in God which the Torah requires will precisely because of what he has, this trust, which is an action verb in Hebrew that means to worship and follow, which forms the basic foundation for obedience to the Torah understands and responds to the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of profession, even the demons believe and they tremble. We speak of God so casually in many cases. But trusting in God's Messiah Yeshua, who are one and the same. Only in this way will a person be deemed righteous in the sight of God he wants to serve and whose Torah he wants to obey. Only by an act of belief in Yeshua will one be able to obey the Torah by the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, which empowers the believer. Disbelief in Yeshua is necessarily disbelief in God's Torah, for Yeshua is the manifested living word of God, HaTorah. This is because the goal in which the Torah aims is the Messiah. 
who offers the Torah's righteousness, which is God's righteousness, his Torah, to everyone who trusts and obeys his commands. I hope you found this helpful, and I hope it's provocative for you, and that you continue to seek and ask and knock for knowledge and wisdom according to God's Torah. Shalom.